Hello, my pleasure seekers, and welcome so much to today's episode. I have the beautiful Shayna Francesca on today's episode, who is the founder of Quantinade, and she is an entrepreneur, a lady of many, many, many hats. Um, I'm very excited to have her on today. She's been on more than 100 podcasts, so no pressure about how today runs. Um, and she's a world-renowned speaker. Um, she's been many amazing magazines, publishings, and she is an international leadership um woman so I'm super super excited to have you on today and thank you so much for joining me yeah thank you for having me when you reached out I was like oh this will be fun let's do this <laughs> oh good I do get that a lot and then I also do get like the preempting conversation of like wanting to make sure you you know you feel okay to talk about certain yeah. things as well so I seem to attract guests that our open books, which is what the show's all about. So yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you for joining me today. And so as I always start off with, your journey seems like a really fascinating one. And I'm super curious to go in deep into this part with you. Your childhood seems very different to where you are now. So how did yeah. you start off yeah. <laughs> yeah. to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Um, so now I'm a scholar of intentional and ethical leadership and living. When I was born, I was born into an abusive household and an evangelical and a home that became very staunchly evangelical Christian. And eventually my parents joined a cult um, and an evangelical Christian cult. I, I started going to the school attached to the church slash cult when I was five. And then we joined the church officially sometime when I was like, seven, eight, nine. Um, and, and so I, I, I grew up, um, inside an ever more tightening, um, grip of trauma in both in my internal world, like in my internal home world and in the external world. And, and I very much lived inside of that bubble. I went to the school there five days a week. We went to church there Wednesday night and twice on Sunday. And then oftentimes, you know, spent additional days there. So my whole life was encompassed um, with this institution. Um, and what that was what was foundational and part of that environment was definitely child labor, um, the perpetuation of virginity and purity culture, which I don't subscribe to the idea of virginity anymore in any way, shape or form. Um, I, but we also now know I have other friends who are scholars. Uh, a friend of mine is a scholar of cults and, you know, she has drawn this very clear line between, um, purity culture and pedophilia um, and the glorification of both innocence and virginity, the logical conclusion of that is pedophilia. Um, and she sees that so clearly because she grew up in the ch child, children of God cult. Um, and uh, so through, throughout my life, um, I was made responsible for other people's thoughts and feelings. I was never allowed to take up space. I was never allowed to be myself. As a matter of fact, I was punished for being myself. I was punished for seeking joy and seeking pleasure. Um, but also at the same time was um, many times subjected to sexual assault. Um, and uh, and I just like wanted to like, take a pause and say like, 
I should have said this at the beginning, but definitely trigger warning <laughs> um, in my story. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about a few of the details. And so I just want to make sure that people are kind to themselves and fast forward, uh, you know, a minute or two into this conversation if they do not feel safe inside of their own selves to be able to in, in, engage in this conversation. Um, you know, besides being physically and verbally assaulted, my father sexually assaulted me at the age of 15 after grooming me for a number of years and forcing me to take a chastity pledge in front of my 2,000, 2,500 person church when I was 12. But that was already deeply traumatizing um, because I had been raped at the age of three by my babysitter's son. And so technically within what the church defines as virginity, I was not a virgin. And so being forced to declare my virginity as I knew it then in front of 2000 people, knowing that it had been taken from me, my right to choose when my body was exposed to, um, other people in that very vulnerable way had been taken from me. And so it already felt like another violation and it felt very manipulative and controlling, but I didn't have the right language to explain it at that time. And I was a child, right? And so as I've gotten older, I can look back and I can recognize that those were absolutely tools of manipulation and my father declaring ownership of my body, which he then tried to take advantage of. He did not succeed, but he did sexually assault me um, at the age of 15, um, which is when I then, you know, decided that if I wasn't going to have a choice of whether or not men in particular violated my body, that I was at least going to choose when and how mm. and with who as best as I could. And it became something that, um, that then I weaponized um, my body, right. To, to try to deal with that kind of pain. Um, and it took me a really long time to realize that's what I was doing. <laughs> um, and eventually left, you know, left the cult altogether, uh, finally at the age of 26. Um, but had suffered so much at its hands, you know, when I made the leadership aware of what my father did, um, three years after he did it, there was no repercussion. There was no accountability. There was no going to the police, which by the way, church leaders are mandated reporters. They are required by law in the United States to report um, harm against children. And they did not. They hid it. They actively protected him from prosecution, even though he admitted it to them. He admitted that he did it. And not just to them, but to other people. Um, and in great detail, in great detail. Um, and so it was very clear, right? Um, and so when I say I grew up in a cult, uh, and, and that that led directly to my work now on, on intentional and ethical leadership and living, I think people can see pretty clearly, um, why that became something I'm, I'm deeply passionate about, um, because there's so much freedom in understanding how to ethically connect with the world around us, with ourselves, um, and to uh, take accountability for our impact. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing all of that yeah. at such an intimate level. And for how you talk about it, you seem so grounded and 
really in your body and I cannot imagine what you went through but how amazing that you've turned this into an absolute superpower in your life so yeah yeah oh my god you're so welcome um how did you manage you said you moved yourself out of this cult at 26 Hmm. that must have been so much conditioning programming how on earth where did you even start yeah I tell people, that's a great question. I tell people I'd left in my head long before I had left in my body. And there was a lot of fear mongering to keep me there, Mm -hmm. right? The the fear of going to hell, the fear of abandoning my responsibilities, the fear of being bad and wrong, um, you know, not investing in people who claimed to have invested in me, right? Uh, But they, they didn't, right? There was to this day, I know nothing about real science. Like I've had to teach myself all kinds of things. I don't even know about evolution at all. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's it's definitely um, very manipulative environment. So you don't know which way is up and which way is down. And the saving grace was that my father left my mother for another woman at 24, when I was 24, right? Wow. And when he did, um, it opened up the possibility for me to consider that, um, that I had other options because as long as I lived in my father's house, I had to obey my father's rules, even as an adult, even though I paid all of my own bills, even though I paid rent to live in that house, right? So legally he had no right over me. Um, he still decided that he did. And I didn't know any different at that time. Not really. I mean, I knew legally he didn't have any right, but I didn't, I wasn't safe to enforce that in any way, shape or form. And because of how abusive my household was, I was cut off from all family or other people that were outside of that cult who would help me leave. But at 25, my grandfather got ill and my grandmother had already passed from lung cancer and my grandfather found out he had lung cancer and he needed someone to live with him to like support him and just make sure he was okay. He was still able to get around. He was still even able to live the house, leave the house at that time, but he just didn't want to live on his own anymore. And when I tell you that that was probably one of the best years of my life living with my grandfather I was finally able to see what it was like for a man to genuinely love you and expect nothing in return. There was no control. There was only kindness and grace. There was only compassion. There was him continually fostering my curiosity and just asking why and letting it be. Um, When it came to me spouting ideology, I would like because I was so programmed, right? And I was still going to the church on the weekend. I was driving an hour back to, to the oh. church and spending the day with my family, you know, not my father, but the rest of my family and coming back. And um, and that year I discovered I, I was, it took me a really long time, but I could finally breathe. Like even when you f- leave that environment at first, and even when you find yourself in a quote unquote safe environment, right? And my grandfather's home was safe, but I didn't know what safety looked like or felt like. And it and I felt like a fish out of water. And so even though it was safe, I didn't feel safe. I didn't know if I was safe because I was always waiting for someone to harm me because someone had always harmed me. And after 
you know, all this time I finally relax. Like he would like give me $40 every weekend so I could travel back and forth between home and go to church. Like he'd give me the gas money. And I was like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to. I was like refusing his gifts because they had always come with strings attached. And finally, like the Christmas before he passed, this was like 10 months into me living with him. I finally was able to see and understand that he genuinely just wanted to support me and loved me. And then it became this very great gift um, and I loved living with him. I loved every minute of living with him, um, because I knew I was safe and it was the first time in my life I had been safe. Um, and so after when he passed, um, I moved out on my own and I, you know, I had roommates. Um, but then I was finally able to get more, more input from other people. And so I think that's the thing is that Finding physical safety is a big key to being able to leave those environments. And you don't always have that before you leave, right? And you don't always have that after you leave mm. um, because you've been cut off from connection and support and community, right? Um, and so, that, you know, that's a huge aspect of my work is the recognition of how propaganda and how misinformation and how our disconnection from ourselves and one, one another has disconnected us from community and it makes it easier for harm to be perpetrated and perpetuated, um, and become generationally, you know, at the forefront of, of many families existence. Um, and so, yeah, I, I leaving was a multi-step process that, um, that kind of, happened by accident. Um, and then on purpose, right? At first it was like, I had no intention of leaving. And then I realized how safe I felt when I wasn't there. And that was the key. And did you, when you realized that not being there wasn't safe, how did you then attract people that felt safe? Because I can imagine your conditioning was to attract people that oh, weren't yeah. safe and not knowing that that wasn't yeah. safe. Yeah. I did attract, um, when I first left, I did very much attract other people who were not safe mm -hmm. because that's the only people I was used to being around, right. uh, like you said. And so there was lots of people who tried to come into my life and manipulate me because they saw that I was like already <laughs> someone who had been manipulated. Um, and it takes a really long time for you to learn to trust your intuition because part of being in a high control environment is them um, punishing you for speaking out about your intuition, for wanting to listen to your intuition, for giving voice to your intuition. And so you learn that your intuition is bad and wrong. And so the one of the very first things that I had to do, and it took quite a long time, was to learn to trust my intuition. And so I when I left the cult, I didn't, I didn't like abandon religion entirely. I still went to other churches. Um, I went to a non-denominational church for four years. And then I realized it was actually just like the cult I had just left. They were actively trying to become that. They were actively um, moving in that direction of becoming a high control environment. They were hiding in propriety. They weren't, um, having any accountability for the expenditure of money. Um, you know, leadership was not being held accountable. And so it was sliding into this very culty existence. And so I left and I went to another non-denominational church 
and the exact same pattern showed up. And um, when that happened, I realized that the problem was for me, the problem was religion Um, and high control environments in general were so pervasive um, in the evangelical Christian space that I wasn't going to find another church that was adjacent and I shouldn't, (laughs) I I shouldn't. And, um, and so I left, you know, religion entirely. Um, and now I think, and when it comes to my beliefs, I'll spend the rest of my life just being curious about what it is that miraculously connects all life. Mm -hmm. And I, but to know that it's not a puppet master in the sky, that it's not an all knowing being, but it is, uh, it is a loving energy. Um, and then to be curious about what does that mean, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, I, it took me a while to recognize that I was still being manipulated. And there was, I knew I was making my way out when, um, about, so I only completely left religion like four years ago at 35. Right. Um, and about, about the same time, about four years ago, um, uh, there was this um, incredible person who was like, Hey, you know, I know you're an entrepreneur building your business. I'm also an entrepreneur. She had just bought this like million dollar house. And she's like, you can rent the top floor from me and I'll give you like really inexpensive rent that aligns with how much you can afford to spend right now. And then, you know, in the future we could increase it as you, you know, make more money. And, um, And it became very clear within two months that she was in fact trying to create a cult. She was actively trying to bring other people into the house. Meanwhile, there was no other bedrooms. Um, And uh, her, her sons occupied one bedroom. She occupied the other and I occupied the, uh, the remaining bedroom. Um, And she was talking about renovating the house to accommodate more bedrooms. And I was like, what is happening here? (laughs) And she was talking about me being someone who could manage the household and we would build a new house out in LA that could accommodate not only the three of us, but, you know, a a partner of hers and the kids and whatever kids we might have. And I was like, what you're describing is very culty. <laughs> um, and so I was like, um, okay. And you know, then there was like strange behavior on her part. And then she asked me to hold her accountable because leaders in her life who she aspired to be like, were calling her out on this behavior, this pattern of behavior. Um, and she was like, Hey, can you just help to hold me accountable? And then when I did like a week later, she came to me, she's like, yeah, I just want to have an update talk about this accountability. And I was like, okay, so what about like your, you know, you're, you're, you're telling me you're dealing it within this aspect, but now I'm saying, oh, what are you doing with in the public aspect, right? In the ways that you're physically acting out this, um, this, as, this behavior. Um, so she was, um, like <laughs> she was engaging with every man she was introduced with in a very sexual and flirtatious manner, which I want, I was being careful not to say this because I want to be clear that I believe in ethical non-monogamy. I am ethically non-monogamous myself. Um, I have been in monogamous relationships, but most of them have in my life since I was 15 have been lovers, but it is not ethical 
if every person you're talking to does not know that they're not the only person you're talking to. And I get that that's sticky because as women, we are programmed to be upfront and honest and that many men are not that way and are not clear about it. But that in my mind, when you're being introduced to somebody by a very powerful person <clears throat> in order to help further your career, and then you're, and then you're turning all of those professional opportunities into sexual ones, all of them. <laughs> and it starts to make the person who's introducing you to these people look really bad because all of these men are going to that person and saying, Hey, do you think I have a chance with her? It puts that person in a really bad position because you obviously haven't clarified the nature of the relationship. <clears throat> and then she was publicly in my mind, sexually assaulting men. I was viewing it, right? I was seeing how uncomfortable these men were. We were at a dinner in LA in Malibu at a brand new restaurant and sitting at the center table. And she showed up. Um, she was on acid, which was fine with me. I don't care. But then she was, um, and she made that known to everybody. So I'm like, okay, so she's feeling in a nice, like light free mood. But, but then she started like sitting on these men's laps and rubbing one man's like chest, like in front of the entire restaurant and in front of everyone without permission. Um, there was no, and in that public of a arena, it's very difficult to extend actual consent um, when, when you're in a public space. So it just felt, and I, and these men had to like get up to get her to stop touching them. And that's when it like really became clear to me that they were really uncomfortable. Like at first I was like, they seem uncomfortable, but I'm not sure. Maybe they'll just say something. And, and so like, that's what she was asking me to hold her accountable for. And when I called out the very public behavior, she became very defensive and kicked me out of the house, um, even though she had asked me to hold her accountable. And so at that point, you know, I very, I had already planned on moving out because of the behavior I was seeing, because although I have no problem with the use of psychedelics in any way, shape or form, I believe they are beautiful ways of healing mm -hmm. and connecting with ourselves the way that she, there is a point in which it becomes habitual rather than something that is being used for healing. And it appeared in my, the way that I perceived it, that that was becoming habitual, that it was an everyday thing. Um, and she was staying up all night, many nights. So she was using a lot of different things at the same time. And it was becoming, her behavior was spiraling, right? And so I was like, this is affecting your professional work. People are calling you out on it. Um, and then that coupled with the way that she wanted to sequester me away from everyone. And like, she was okay with people implying that we were together, even though we weren't. I mean, there was just like a lot going on Um that was without my permission. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was like, okay, this is crossing a lot of boundaries for me. And, and I was able to remove myself. And that's the moment when I realized like, and all of that happened in two months, by the way. Oh yeah. So that's why I'm saying, like, like all of that happened in two months. There was the love bombing, the asking me to come move in with her, the, you know, going to LA and spending the week together with a couple of other beautiful, amazing women who I'm still friends with. Um, and, and then all of this culminating, it all happened in two months. Right. And so that's when you know that yeah. something is deeply unhealthy when that entire journey happens. <laughs> I, 
cannot begin to agree with you. Um, And so when I walked away after two months, when I had packed my things before she had even, she, I'd packed my things and and already asked the minute I got back from LA, because she came back about 12 hours after me. Um, I had already reached out to family and said, I, I need to get out of here. I'm not safe. I'm deeply unsafe. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't know what's going to happen when she gets back. Um, and, and I had already started packing my things and was preparing to move when she had the conversation with me. And I was like, hey, what about the public ways that you're touching men that just feel uncomfortable? I'm not sure that they're happening with consent. Um, she looked like I had like, I don't know, like the devil came out of her eyes. <laughs> and, uh, and she was very, very angry. And she threw me out before I woke up to a text message um, of, of her saying that it was time for me to leave. I was like, Oh, great, because I'd already packed my things. <laughs> I'll be out today. I'll be out in four hours. Wow. <laughs> um, and so I luckily I drive a, a, a 2015 Honda Pilot and I could literally fit my entire life inside of it and so I just packed it all up and 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 got out that day um, but I knew in that moment that I was so much stronger because I had spoken up right mm-hmm. I had used my voice when I wasn't safe I had I had done exactly what I was asked to do, hold her accountable. Um, And when I was punished for that, I did not apologize. I did not make any excuses for it. I simply removed myself because my boundaries were being crossed. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I knew that I was so deep in my healing journey. I was like, nailed it. (laughs) I love when that happens. Ah, Nailed it. Um, You know, because, and and it's not like, and I didn't make myself bad or wrong for not seeing it sooner or any of those things, right? I was just like, Mm -hmm. you used your voice, you knew you're not safe and you left, right? And you know, that was the beginning of a really important part of the last four years of my life of, um, of knowing that I can trust my intuition Mm. and that I can trust myself and I'm safe inside of my own body. Wow. And then, so when you moved away from that situation, have you found then your relationships and friendships have just totally diverse into healthy and and how yeah. did you readjust your body right because yeah I, I can relate to this too in a different in my own experience but like when your intuition sometimes can be programmed to thinking something safe when it's not safe mm-hmm. and you've mentioned around we've talked about microdosing before but like how has that kind of that piece yeah. helped you in this process yeah so um I have made a friend <laughs> And she happens to be an authority on microdosing. And for obvious reasons, I will not be using their name. Um, I will just say their name is Nancy. So I found <laughs> I found Nancy, Thank God for um, Nancy. <laughs> and we connected and <clears throat> I had done a lot of research on what and was learning a lot about, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a scholar, so all I do is research. <laughs> research and share that knowledge. Right. And so I was looking at, and especially for myself, um, looking at the benefits of psychedelics when it comes to complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. And, um, as I entered into that, I had been doing that research for like two years already. 
um, and really just watching the studies, watching the work being done, listening to the stories of people who had been through the trials and was like, I really think this would be very beneficial for me in establishing new healthy neural pathways. And I knew that I needed to get it to a certain place in my healing to be good inside of my own body and inside of my own head before I introduced that medicine, right? Like, because it's establishing new neural pathways, you need to be able to trust your own intuition. You need to be at a certain place of healing, um, or at least maybe not a certain place of healing, but also like a certain place in your head, right? Like to be able to take that on and for it to establish new neural pathways in a healthy way, right? Rather than in like further negative way. And so you really need someone to be guiding you through that. At least for me at the beginning, there was like the need for someone to be us be having discussions and making sure that I'm in the right headspace before that I'm taking that on inside of my body. Um, and so I, you know, had those conversations with Nancy and, you know, we were talking through and I knew I was in the right, I was finally like in the right place. Um, and, and microdosing is something that, you know, oh gosh, it recreate, it reconnected me to my creativity in a way because creativity and, and sharing our art with the world is the manifestation of our perception of the world, right? And to be able to be vulnerable enough to allow to, for me to share the manifestation, the actual physical representation of my perception of the world with the world around me, um, was something I hadn't felt safe to do in a really long time because I was made bad and wrong every time I did. Right. Because my perception was attacked, was it was the devil. It was, you know, the devil using me. It was a whole variety of things. Right. And so letting go of that and knowing that I get to share myself with the world Mm -hmm. and that I can, and that my perspective is not only valid, but valuable, um, and can help others heal as well. Like the collective sharing of our stories is very powerful. It is, I think the beginning of community. Um, was something that microdosing absolutely like ushered me back into is you are safe to be yourself. You are safe to be creative. You are connected to all nature. You are nature, Mm -hmm. right? You are nature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and you're safe inside of your own body. Even when other people try to violate that, you now have a way of connecting with the world and using your voice to speak out against that um, and to find community and connect yourself. And, um, and, and to your question about, um, you know, finding, finding the right people around me, it's, it's a journey. Like, it's not like all of a sudden I flipped a switch and I was like, oh, everyone around me is healthy. It doesn't work like that. If only, if only. <laughs> yeah. What it is, is the recognition that our, the way that I am able to create, you know, health in the relationships around me 
is to have established my own boundaries and continually be checking in with myself Mm -hmm. about my boundaries. Have they shifted? Have they changed based on new information and understanding of the world? Has that affected my boundaries and what I'm willing to allow into my life? Typically the answer is yes. (laughs) Um, And as my boundaries change and shift and as who I am shows, as as who I show up in the world is changing and shifting as well. Who are the people who are honoring that and continually curious about who I am and who I'm becoming and I vice versa and continually curious about who they are and how they want to take up space in this world. And, and the, and the recognition of like, who's trying to colonize me versus be in community with me, right? Who's trying to use my emotional and physical labor and my ideas or who is co-creating with me, right? Like these are the questions I've had to ask in relationship and sometimes usher myself out of relationship with people and other times feel safe to continue to enter deeper into relationship with people. And so when you say that colonizing of ideas, what does, you don't need to name names or anything, but like what, have you got an example? Doesn't need to be a real life example, but something yeah. so you can listen to and, and understand more and relate yeah. to themselves if they yeah. feel they're in this position. Yeah. Especially for women. I think it's important yeah. that we recognize within patriarchy and Liz Plank said this so beautifully that women are raised to be colonized and women are men are raised to be colonizers. Right. And obviously I'm not saying that in a way to, to, um, to say that there are only two genders or two sexes. I'm not saying any of that. So I want to recognize that when I'm saying that, I'm saying that under patriarchy, those are the only two accepted sexes and genders um, in order to subjugate people. But I absolutely recognize that there are more than two sexes and there are more than two genders. Um, There's a a spectrum of both. Um, And anybody who doesn't understand that biologically more than you know, 2% of the population is intersex and intersex is not a single identity. It is a spectrum of, of biology um, that is neither male nor female. Um, And I encourage people to check that out and to understand Mm -hmm. it. And there's also, what's really cool is I've learned that there's this group of people in both South America and the Dominican Republic who are actually born with one specific set of genitalia. And then they're at, at puberty, their genitalia presents entirely differently. Whoa. I know how cool they even have a word for it. And I don't remember the word, but there's a word for it. And it's so cool. Yeah. It's Everyone so, I, I, Googling away after that. I know. It's so cool. It's so cool. I learned about it from Amanda Montel, the linguist. Mm. She wrote Word Slut and Cultish. So if anybody hasn't read, written or read those words, those books, I absolutely highly recommend them. They definitely show us the shifts and changes in the world through language and how language and sh- cultural shifts go hand in hand. Um, and it's just so beautiful and so cool. Anyway, so she actually talks about, um, and I think it was in, um, I can't remember which book she actually <laughs> referenced it in, but both are pretty quick reads and uh, like five hour reads. So like definitely pick them up. Um, but yeah, so, you know, to recognize what it is to be colonized mm. um, is the use of your creativity, your emotional labor, your physical labor without your consent and 
And there is it, what goes hand in hand with that is dehumanization and objectification, mm-hmm. which is necessary in hierarchy. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to let all of that sink in. Right. Yeah. And so whenever someone is talking down to me is, um, trying to assert authority over me or assert their dominance in the relationship or, um, be very sympathetic because I have this whole thing. I hate sympathy. I think sympathy is fake. <laughs> I think sympathy isn't a, is I have that. That's like a whole conversation okay. into itself. But, <laughs> but, but whenever someone is like being, is like, kind of like patting me on the head. Like I get that feeling, you Mm -hmm. know, like they're like, don't worry, you'll catch up. You know what I mean? That kind of like fake inspirational way of, of trying to pretend to be in support. Um, you know, again, listen to your intuition and I'm not saying everyone it's how someone says something, not what they're saying. Right. Like, cause someone could say, don't worry, Shana, you're going to get there. Like people are going to see how powerful you are. That's a very different thing than don't worry, you're going to get there. Right. Like one's patronizing and one is deeply human. Right. Um, and so, you know, for me, I've just had to recognize whenever someone is trying to establish or in their mind is already established that they hold the position of power or the, the hierarchically, you know, they've ranked themselves above me. I am certain of two things. They are insecure and they are trying to hide that insecurity through dominating me and that they are also likely taking my ideas. (laughs) Um, And so I have become very sensitive to people's language their body language, the way they introduce me to other people is a dead giveaway. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is like all in, like, oh my God, this is my friend, you know, Shana, this is, or they're like, hey, this is Shana. She's an incredible mind. She's a powerful speaker. You have to know her. Um, you know, it's a very different thing than like, you know, Shana really would like to meet you. Right. Or like, yeah. you know, or like, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's like so much subtlety in language, (laughs) but I've just come to the place where, um, I set intentions and expectations in relationship. And then I watch what people do with them. Nice. And if they aren't respecting and honoring them, then I, I just carefully and kindly exit. Because you have that communication with them? Like, do you say like, depends. it depends on how they violated, right? So if they're violating my boundaries, no, I do not owe them an explanation as to why I am leaving a situation. Um, I don't care how long we've been in relationship, right? So if like they are directly violating boundaries and I've said, hey, this is a this is a violation and they're and they proceed without pause, without validation, without recognition, without accountability of their impact, then I I will exit. And, and if it is a blatant disrespect, I don't even, I don't even give a second chance. Um, I've learned that there is testing of people's boundaries in order to see what you'll tolerate. Yep. Totally. And, and if 
someone is directly knowingly violating my boundaries. I do not owe them an explanation. And um, quite frankly, what's, what's a funny test is like, if you step back and they don't say anything within a 24 hour or 48 hour period of time, like after they violated and you just kind of step back and you don't speak to them for several months. And then all of a sudden they try to insert themselves back into your life with no recognition of the fact that you withdrew from their life because of a violation. That is a direct red flag. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. Yeah. Because they're just trying to keep moving forward in relationship with you and hoping you won't bring it up Mm. and that you won't say anything about it. Um, And that's a no for me. So like, I've just learned, I I mean, I guess that's what this whole journey has been is the recognition of my intuition, the establishing of my boundaries. Like that's what healing has is for me Mm. because that's what was taken from me is my humanity, is my ability to, sh- to be my whole self in the world, the ability to have boundaries and for them to be honored and respected, the empowerment of me being able to ask for what I want and what I need in relationship with someone and them say, you know what, I'm prepared to show up and, and, and be in relationship with you in that way. And here's how I want to be in relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And there to be a sharing of those expectations and those intentions mm-hmm. and us to honor them and each each one of, and to figure out how they work together and to co-create together. Mm-hmm. That's a very different thing than, than what I experienced growing up. And so that has been like, that's healing for me. That is my healing journey. That is huge. I, I feel like everyone needs to listen to this and understand that is how you establish boundaries. Cause we're not taught that particularly, like you said, as women, yeah. Yeah. we're taught to be pretty much the opposite depending on yeah. circumstances. But yeah. And um, so how have you, I love, we've just gone on for a good 40 minutes. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I love this. How have you transformed your big community builder? You've said this already. Yeah. How have you, intentionally gone about building a non-cult focused community and a business like your business is let's just I let's just hear about your business because it's it's astonishing from where you've come from to how you've created this and what you've created I want to look up I'm going to really quickly pull up the definition of consonate the name of my business because I really want people to be connected to the definition and understand why I chose it so Consonate means to arrange or blend together skillfully as parts or elements put together in a harmonious, precisely appropriate or elegant manner. And that's essentially what my work is. It is to consonate our lives, Mm -hmm. to understand what is precisely appropriate, to understand, and and it's not about perfection in any way, shape or form, because that doesn't exist in nature, Mm -hmm. but there is what's precisely appropriate in an interaction with the natural world around us. And, you know, I said, at the, uh, you know, said at the beginning, I'm a scholar of, of um, intentional and ethical leadership and living. And the foundation of my work is curiosity, respect, and accountability, because I truly believe that continual investment in those things is what prevents any group of people, any group of living beings um, from slipping into, from, from a, from a healthy culture to a cult when there isn't accountability, when there isn't respect, when there isn't curiosity, because curiosity without respect is intrusive and respect without curiosity is uneducated. And the natural 
um, result of curiosity is recognizing the our impact. Good, bad, otherwise is recognizing our impact and the difference between our intention and our impact so that we can continually adjust our intentions to be able to manifest the you know, a healthy and proper impact on the world around us and to take accountability for that mm-hmm. and to understand that there's reciprocity in every relationship, right? We must give and receive an equal measure, right? And I've learned that from indigenous wisdom. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's been uh, this journey into how do I distill all of the wisdom that I've gathered in my own healing journey and share it with the world with leaders, with professionals, with everyday people in a way that we recognize that the investment in these things is what empowers us to build community. Because without these things, it isn't really community. It Mm -hmm. is a cult, right? It is power imbalances. It is domination. It is colonization. It is exploitation, right? And when those things are present, it isn't community. So investment in these things is, I believe, the foundation of what is required for us to enter into true, healthy, beautiful community with one another. And to all of us, all of us do more than survive, but to thrive, right? And in in doing, to be able to do that, we have to invest in not only our thriving, but everyone else's. Mm -hmm. And also... I just feel when you say thriving, everyone else is leading, but leading and showing people how to do that for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, you know, I, I, when I speak to leaders, the thing I remind, I remind myself and because I am also a leader and the leaders that I work with is Mm -hmm. that we cannot ask people to contribute to our thriving if we are not contributing to, and they themselves are not thriving. If we are only giving the bare minimum, we can only expect the bare minimum in return. If we are not honoring the fact that human beings are the only beings on this planet that have to pay to live here, and yet we are systematically denying the resources necessary for people to have access to the bare minimum required for their survival, we cannot expect them to contribute to our, to our thriving in any way, shape, or form. And we do not care about them period full stop god so many examples come to mind that you've shared around different businesses and i can imagine when you say that to people that can rattle and trigger quite a few leaders it does but it i'm not saying it in in a in an accusatory way i'm saying it to invite people to remember Mm -hmm. because so many of us and i don't think very many people in general are taught um, how to be human. Mm-hmm. We're taught how to survive within capitalism or within power structures. And in and to do so, we must dominate. We must exploit. We must continue that pattern in order to succeed within an exploitative system. And so it's not a condemnation. It's an invitation. And so for you now, where does your, you talk about life design as well. How do you fit that into to yeah. the work that you do? Yeah. So um, the life design aspect is really how the um, original medium of my work, right? So just like an artist uses a paintbrush or a pencil or a sculpt or a sculpting materials, metals and stone 
you know, my original medium was interior design and I have a BS in interior design and was this discussion of how do we create authentic environments, which directly reflect who we are and how we want to show up in the world, not other people's expectations that other people do not get opinions inside of our homes specifically and especially. Um, but that if we do not feel safe to show up as our whole selves and to feel our whole selves reflected in the environment, we close our eyes to every day and open our eyes to every morning that that space is really and truly can be, and is a vision board for our life, mm -hmm. right? And it becomes the stage from which we tell the story of our life, not in a performative way, but in the way that when you are watching a play, right, the, the, the stage props and the stage set sets a tone. It supports the actors in the story they're telling, right? That if we don't feel safe to craft environments that way, and we aren't taught, we're taught to keep up with trends to, you know, so on and so forth, right? If we don't even feel empowered to be our full and authentic selves inside of our own homes, it is very unlikely that we feel that we are safe to do that in any other aspect of our lives in any way, shape or form. And so my work in interior design was very transformative. It was not about crafting what other people would consider a beautiful environment. And I, sometimes people would, I remember this one Instagram um, commenter said, you know, I don't like this space at all. And I was like, I'm so glad that you voiced that because I didn't actually make it for you, you know? And so it's a matter of recognizing that if I were working with you, I wouldn't create this space because this space exists for these people and these people alone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist for you and you're not actually invited there. Right. Um, and that's the recognition. We need to recognize that we do not get an opinion about other people's environments, right? Unless it is doing harm. Um, and, and so like, I think that was like a light bulb, like aha moment for me is this, like, I'm not creating an, I'm not creating a design practice for anyone else just for my clients. Mm -hmm. I am the mirror they've chose or chosen to reflect how I see them back to themselves. And I feel such a honor in being invited to be their mirror. Right. And I, I respect and honor my clients deeply and, and recognize, um, the vulnerability in that ask and them opening up their lives to me to let me see who they are and how they want to show up in the world. And, you know, some of my clients are like judges and lawyers and heads of medical departments and, um, and one, one of my clients looked at me and said, yeah, I tell everybody like you're my life coach and my interior designer. Cause I don't know what else to describe you as. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not a life coach and I don't want to get into coaching. Um, but, but I, there's something there that you're trying to give language to. And I've been trying to figure that out as well. Mm. And so I'm going to, I'm going to give that more space in my life. And I started leading group coaching, um, worked with leaders from the age of like 23 to 55, almost 60, mm -hmm. um, in, in having these discussions around what is it to create safe spaces for yourself, for your people, mm -hmm. to create avenues of communication and to really dive into the research that I'd been doing since I was 29, right. In my, in, in my own healing journey and wanting to build my own business, I'd started doing research at 29. I started the business at 32. <clears throat> and I, and that this is what led to, you know, my 
my work now is just a decade worth of research of what is it to be able to show up as a, as a human being in the world um, and to empower others to do the same. I want to ask you what's next, but I maybe can imagine you. <laughs> Where do you envision like seeing this heading to for you? Yeah. Um, well, my goal is that I'm able to have these conversations with people, whether it be from the stage or through my workshops or through some consulting work, and then empower them to their own journey, to their own humanity, right? I don't want to be anyone's guru. I'm not interested in, in, um, in that because there are no gurus, right? We are our own compass, our own center. It is, needs to come from our own intuition. And so I'm happy to, you know, consult with people to be a person, a voice of wisdom within their life that they can talk to. Um, but I am not interested in being the center of anyone's life. Yeah. Right. Nice. And so the next, you know, the next step, the next thing that I'm stepping into is focusing on my public speaking, focusing on my consulting and my, and giving my workshops. Um, uh, and, and my, each workshop comes and I offer them through my website for anybody who's interested, but each workshop comes with a workbook that comes with a recommended reading list. And it's kind of like a choose your own journey situation, right? Like you don't have to read a single one of those books. You could read all of them. You could read it, two of them, one of them. Um, you could pick which ones really resonate with you. And then what I love, what I love about reading a book is that the author always references what inspired them, right? A great, you know, a great author will. And then you can then say, oh, you know what? In this conversation, when they were talking about this, they referenced a book and I'm going to read that book next, right? And it becomes what resonates with you? What is the next step for you in your journey, right? And you get to determine that and determine how, um, you know, how you want your own healing, you know, journey and path and where you want it to take you. And so for anyone who's looking to understand more one-on-one -on -one with you or how they can work with you as a consultant, like I said, they're their yeah. own guru, um, where can they find you? Where's the best place to reach out to you? Yeah. Best place is through my website, um, www.consonate.world. It's C-O-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-E. I'm sure it'll be tagged in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> um, that's the best way. My information about me as a speaker, there's some free information for people looking to connect with what does life design mean for them? How do they kind of get started with that thought process? There's some information there. Um, <clears throat> And then also I spend a good amount of time on LinkedIn and TikTok, mm -hmm. um, you know, having these discussions. Uh, so you can t connect with me there. I'm Shana Francesca at both. Um, so feel free to connect with me that way as well. Amazing. Well, I'll put, yeah, yeah. like you said, all of those pieces. Yeah. And well, and I'm going to start writing my book in December. So that'll be, yeah. So how to, you know, kind of in part what I'm sharing here, it's not really a memoir. I think a memoir will come later, but kind of <laughs> memoir adjacent as to like, how did I grow up in a high control environment? And then how did that lead me to becoming a scholar of intentional and ethical leadership and living? I imagine it's going to be a very popular book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The working title is one of two things, either curiosity did not kill the cat or how to be human. Those are the working titles. <laughs> I know. My, my gut instinct was the cat one. I know. I know. And but maybe yeah. you'll have another. Oh, they're both so good. I know. But it could be like curiosity did not kill the cat and how to be human. 
<laughs> just kidding. I don't know. I don't know how I'd weave That's it in. That's a long time. <laughs> Stay tuned for this title. It's all right. You yeah. said December, so you have a good eight weeks. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm just starting to write the book, so I'm sure that the title may change in the process, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that will be an incredible book. So I yeah. cannot wait. And please do let me know when that I will. is launched so we can promote that and, and get that out into the world. And help yeah, you. absolutely yeah. appreciate that. No, you are very, very welcome. Um, Well, thank you so much once again for joining today and for being so honest and open about your story. Um. It's been an absolute honor to have you. I'm really, really, really grateful for you to come today and yeah. for the lessons. I'm going to listen to this a good few times myself around boundaries and things like that. So, um, yeah, honestly, thank you so much for joining today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And thanks for, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I was so excited when you reached out. So, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Good. I'm so pleased. Oh, you're so welcome. And, yeah, for everyone listening, I'll pop everything in the show notes. If, you, um, if anyone feels triggered or they feel deeply felt or some form of emotion has been brought up today, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, and I will put Shana's details in the show notes if anyone wants to know more how they can work with her and connect with her. And thank you so much, my beautiful souls, for listening to today's episode. And Shana, once again, thank you so much. Thanks.